Welcome to the AI Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Schaefer. Every week and every day, we interview AI experts and bring you the latest in AI news. Today on the podcast with us, we have Paul Blankley from Zenlytic and Ryan Jansen from Zenlytic. Ryan is the CEO and Paul is the CTO of this incredible company that has raised millions of dollars to make your business intelligence uh, better and easier. So today on the podcast, we're going to be diving into what exactly they're doing. Um, welcome to the show, both of you. Uh, maybe we can kick it off to Ryan first to tell us a little bit about your background, uh, what you what got you into this space in general. Yeah, for sure. So I uh, my background is I am kind of a zigzaggy background. Uh, you know, in like in venture capital, they talk about crossing the table, uh, like going back and forth from VC to founder. Yeah. I guess that's that's I'm a table crosser. So okay, I started uh, started my career as engineer in my native Canada, but pretty quickly uh, I went to uh, sort of join a VC fund. Like I went to move to the UK actually, okay. an MBA, stayed there as kind of like an early employee of a venture fund, uh, and I was there as a VC for a long time. Uh, that was good fun. Uh, but then I crossed the table over to Founds Analytic. Uh, and the, the precipitating event for that was actually just seeing how fast the tech was moving. And this was actually in like, uh, you know, a long time ago, this is 2017 or something, but way uh, back in the stone age, in the stone age. And it's like dog years, <laughs> man. AI is just moving so fast, but it's funny because the, the data point for me at, that, at the time was like, wow, things had come a long way since I was an engineer. Uh, I couldn't believe how far, I mean, the hardware improved, of course, but that just unlocked all these new software capabilities. And it was, you know, it was clear that, uh, this, you know, data technology is going places basically. But the thing that really stood out was not the size of the change, but the pace. And it was clear mm. that it was accelerating uh, and that wow. has stayed clear all the way through to today, right? So like, yeah. even now it feels like we're speeding up and the acceleration kind of never stops. Exactly, right? And like, it feels like we're on a raft and you can feel the water's getting a little choppy just before the waterfall kind of vibes. So uh, that's what got me excited then. And that's what keeps me excited now. And that's how I ended up getting involved with AI. Very, very cool. And then what about yourself, Paul? Yeah, so I've, I'm like a nerd's nerd. I was, you know, I've been math and CS like my whole my whole way through. Um, and Ryan and I actually met in technical grad school at Harvard. Okay. Um, you know, that, that Ryan was coming back to, you know, brush up on his technicals and I was just finishing up grad school there. And then right after that, we uh, actually started consulting together. So that was mm, like setting okay. up these data stacks for companies. So that's like setting up, you know, Snowflake, BigQuery, all the sort of major cloud data warehouses and, you know, setting up analytical systems. And the thing that really got us started with Zenlytic was seeing the difference in what we were doing in grad school, the capabilities of the AI tech there versus the, all the, you know, old 20 year old business intelligence tools that we were setting up. So we're mm -hmm. like, you know, th there's, there's fundamentally going to be a change in how people actually use data because, you know, AI has advanced to the point that, a lot of the things you want, you can just ask for, as opposed to, you know, have to figure out some old interface. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And um, then I guess for, over to you, Ryan, how do, how would you say like, well, what's the main problem that you guys see you're solving the main issue that your, your customers had that they're, you know, coming over to you. So what is the main thing you're, you're delivering for them? Yeah. The, well, the main problem is really, uh, what I would call self-serve BI, which is like uh, using business intelligence without being a technical person. If, if you're a big nerd like Paul or I, and you know, you know, SQL or Python or uh, something, you know, language like that, it's incredibly powerful what you can do with, you know, a cloud data warehouse these days. Uh, for, for the vast majority of people, they don't know and they don't want to know how to write SQL queries and things like that. So they're kind of stuck uh, using 
I guess dashboards is the name of the game, right? So like mm-hmm. dashboards are, are fine, but you know, the, the problem is, is that people, you know, start there and if they have to go any deeper, if they have to double click on anything or they want to drill down into something or ask a follow-up question, it's an email to the data team. Uh, and you know, th- they're called quick data polls. Uh, that's kind of a joke in the industry because they're never quick. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's the average person, uh, and the average organization is like maybe 60 people for every data pe- team member. So like that person, wow is meeting the needs of 60 people. Uh, these, these questions after a few times back and forth and you wanna get the results daily instead of weekly and you, know, you realize there's an error somewhere and there's, you know, you, you, you're iterating on this, uh, we're, we're talking you know, days or weeks. You know? So mm. uh, our, our goal is to uh, make that faster, uh, make that instantaneous, frankly, uh, by incorporating this sort of always on instant you know, AI chatbot that can analyze the data uh, and field you know, a solid majority of those questions. Okay. So Paul, talk to me a little bit about like, you know, Ryan's mentioned this AI chatbot. Talk to me a little bit about how AI is being integrated into your platform, what that really looks like. Is this an API? Um, is this uh, you know, a wrapper on an API to something like open AI? Is this your own in-house AI? Like what, what's the, what does it look like uh, for you guys having AI integrated? Totally. Again, and, and this is, this is a really important point actually because there's a lot of people trying to do, you know, open AI or Anthropic or something like that to SQL. So you mm-hmm. ask it a question, it'll generate some SQL and then it'll go and run that on a, on a warehouse. That mm-hmm. just does not work outside of some super trivially simple situation where you've got like two tables. It, it's just in any organization, the definitions themselves are super complex. Visa has a team of almost hundred people just to calculate what revenue is. These things just get really, really complicated. And you can't just let an LLM kind of guess at some SQL that might or might not be the right answer, (laughs) especially when you have an executive who doesn't know SQL and can't verify that it's doing the right thing. And then, you know, that's just not a situation that can happen, not for a public company, not for, you know, even a mid-market company that would make a really bad decision with, you know, a wrong definition there. For sure. the, the definitions have to be correct. And the way we solve that problem is that we have um, a semantic layer. That's where, you know, the data team, the people who have the context can go in and define exactly what those definitions are. And then the LLM, instead of, you know, having to guess at SQL and figure out all these complicated definitions, just basically picks from a menu of definitions and okay. then just says, hey, I want, you know, this metric over this time, sliced by this thing, filtered down for this. Um, we can then compile the SQL deterministically to make sure that everything is always right. So okay. the way that works on the LLM side is that we're using you know, GPT-4. Um, that's really the only LLM out there right now that's capable of doing this uh, really okay. well. Um, we're using GPT-4, but the really crucial point is that we have that semantic layer. That's a different mm. architecture from every other company that's doing this. And it's really a really critical difference because you just cannot trust the LLMs to guess at SQL right every time. Right. No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think the the hybrid is definitely the right approach here. Um, you know, you mentioned using GPT-4. Uh, I've heard from a number of founders working on different projects, uh, complaints with just the state. Well, I mean, first off, how long have you had access to that? Where, did you have early access or is that relatively new that you guys got on? Early, early access. We've had access okay. since they launched the API. Oh, awesome. Okay, that's awesome. I've, so I've heard a number of people complain about, um, they say from going from GPT 3.5 to GPT 4's API, like they, they have like timeout issues and some things like that. 
how have you guys experienced that or, or, and if so, is there something you've done to get around it or, or has it been fairly similar to 3.5? No. So the latency is much worse. That's, um, and that's just kind of the price you have to pay. You have to architect the application to be able to support latencies that are higher like that, which isn't fun for anybody. Like no one, no one likes that. Right. (laughs) You know, you, you, when you're, when you're looking at like, you know, eight seconds versus three seconds or waiting three days for something, eight seconds is still the no brainer. Um, but, but it's still not fun. Um, we had a lot of problems with latency with them probably two ish months ago. Okay. But to their credit, they have sorted a lot of that out. Um, really? You know, average request times are down probably like a third of what they were two months ago. So okay. they're they're overall doing a really good job. Every now and then they'll have a bad day and things will mm-hmm. take longer. But yeah. uh, luckily our systems are architected to be able to like handle those bad situations. Okay, well. that's awesome. Yeah, because I heard complaints about like, essentially if you send in a bunch of requests all at the same time, there's issues and stuff, but... So I guess there's work workarounds in the architecture. That's awesome. Ryan, talk to me about like who who your ideal customer using your platform right now is. Like walk me through a use case. All right. Paul mentioned Visa using it to uh, using tools similar to like calculate revenue and stuff. Like what's an ideal use case? Like I'm Coca-Cola or I'm some business and I'm you know gonna use your platform. What am I gonna do with it? Yeah. So uh our, our, our users uh, are actually sort of like there's two groups in an organization that touch the product. The first is the data teams that sort of deploy uh, analytics. They're also the teams that are setting up data pipelines and the data warehouse. Uh, they're also the people that used to be doing those quick data pulls. Uh, okay. So that's side one. Side two is the end user, the self-serve user. Uh, and those are the non-technical folks who are just trying to find the answers. Okay. Uh, and those we get usage from both sides. Uh, it's it's designed for the non-technical user, but that means the technical user can also use it to get faster answers. So, uh, you know, quite often, even as someone who writes SQL, I'll use analytic to like generate a SQL query and just iterate from that instead of starting one from scratch, for instance. Yeah. Uh, but the name of the game is the non-technical user. And and to give you an example of you know what that looks like, uh, if if you say you were a performance marketing manager, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for some sort of, you know, leading D2C brand, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, you'll, you'll probably have a, a whole bunch of dashboards that you're checking every single day, monitoring campaign effectiveness, monitoring, uh, you know, user traffic flows throughout the app, monitoring funnel conversion, checkout rates. You, you just, uh, you'll have a giant dashboard of stuff that's, that's monitoring that. And maybe say okay. one day, uh, you'll notice that, uh, for instance, your ROAS, uh, is going down. Your return on ad spend uh, on one of your dashboards, you'll see a bit of a dip there or something like that. That, under most circumstances, you'd actually be asking the data team for help at that point in time. And mm-hmm. you'd say, all right, I need to understand what's going on with this situation so we can rectify the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll email the, email the nerds and be like, all right, can you give me the breakouts of these by X, Y, and Z? I want this by you know first product purchase, last product purchase, whether or not they're a pre- premium subscriber, all these slices at once, these combinations. Mm-hmm. I want this, you know, trended versus last month at this time. Is this a real problem? Trended versus last year at this time. And you'll ask all these questions to really sort of get your head around the problem and get the shape of the problem. Okay. Uh, that's a slow process. Now it can be handed, handled automatically and instantaneously. Uh, and you can actually just, you know, fire those away and iterate on those live uh, just by updating those charts and updating that data and say, all right, tell me more about this SKU. Uh, is this a sort of problem? Uh, or even... Uh, you know, use some of the advanced functionality in Zenlytic to break the problem apart. Uh, and you can actually just click and over, drag over and say, all right, explain to me why this dip is happening. Uh, okay. And it will build hypotheses for you. It'll give you, you know, half a dozen ideas. 
oh, it turns out this skew or the, you know, this combination of this skew and this particular campaign have been underperforming their historical ROAS. Uh, you know, also look at this particular promotion code. This is also not doing well. Uh, you know, did you know there was a stock out here? So like this particular, uh, you know, SKU is also underperforming and it'll actually break that down into ideas for you that you can action. So uh, it basically, you know, your objective with any sort of, you know, data research project like, project like that is to take a big, vague problem and break it down into a bunch of smaller actionable problems with solutions. And, and mm -hmm. we just accelerate that process. And okay. I guess we, you know, the build, measure, learn cycle, uh, we're, the, we're the measure part. Okay. Very, very cool. Paul, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, like what are some of the differentiators between Zenlytic and other business intelligence tools that are currently in the market? How are you guys setting yourselves apart and, and being unique in, in kind of in the space? Totally. So I would say the first thing is our, one of our taglines is that we're the world's first self-serve BI tool. And that's a bold claim because BI tools have been claiming to be self-serve for a really long time, <laughs> like since before I was born. Um, <laughs> but, but the reason that that's actually true is that, you know, we can dramatically alleviate this problem that Ryan's talking about, which is that quick data pull. Data teams mm. spend, you know, 60, 70% of their time just answering these ad hoc requests. And that's a huge amount of time just doing very basic, like filtering, slicing things that are just a little bit too complicated for end users, but really just mundane and sort of mind-numbing for the data team. So uh, that we can actually do that because we've got the full BI suite of functionality. So it's like all the row-based access control, the complicated, you know, BI stuff that you need uh, mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, deploy this in an organization of scale. And, um, and then we can marry that with the LLM interface where you're able to you just ask about the things you need. You don't have to know which table something's in beforehand. You don't have to know how to join these two things. You don't have to know exactly, did we include returns or not include returns in that net revenue definition? Um, you just ask for what you need and uh, you're able to get it in seconds. So the main differentiator is just that ability to reduce those ad hoc data requests, speed up things for both the data team who don't have to answer those and the end users who don't have to spend you know, a week on commenting on a Jira ticket to get some data that they need. Okay. Very, very cool. So Ryan, I want to ask you a little bit about the the early days of Zenlytic and kind of founding and, and bringing this together. So I understand, right, you and Paul, you you meet when you're at school um, at some point and you, you start doing some consulting and whatnot, if I'm getting the story straight. What like inspired you to be like, oh my gosh, we need to start a company. What was the first steps that you you kind of took in that? And, and I guess what, you know, made you decide to go from being, you know, VC to consultant to now all of a sudden you're like starting an actual software company. Like it's a big step, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd say we had an unconventional path to it. Uh, and I'd say that we, uh, yeah, for context, after Paul and I uh, met when, when we graduated, we started this data science consultancy uh, that was doing everything from building data pipelines all the way through to data driven strategy and involved a lot of sort of, you know, touched a lot of the various BI tools uh, that existed mm -hmm. out there. Uh, that was, that was always uh, sort of, there's two, there's two intentions there. The first was to sort of bootstrap a war chest. Uh, okay. so go in the product mode. Uh, the second was to really understand the shape of the problem. Um, and so the, the intent was always to sort of shift into product mode once we had a, you know, really good idea of how we're going to tackle this. Okay. Uh, I'd say we had a vague inbound notion that, you know, self-serve was not working, but then after, having had a chance to live the lives of really both sides of the problem and a lot of different lenses, basically, I think that helped us sort of refine exactly what we had to do. 
what we were going after, uh, you know, what the shape of the product was going to look like. Uh, so that was the first big unlock. The second big unlock actually came about a year after we went into product mode. So we, we, we set out to build the world's first self-serve BI tool. Uh, and I think we got a lot of the way there uh, over the was course of that. Was it the two of you working on it? Started out with the two of us. Uh, okay. We're now up to 11. Um, okay. And hiring, if you're interested. So uh, <laughs> any listeners that are awesome, please reach out to us. Uh, yeah, so the uh, it was the two of us at the time, but we we sort of started building uh, for that first year. Uh, and we made a tremendous amount of progress, uh, but we didn't even realize at the time that self-serve probably wasn't possible then. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. like, uh, it's, it's the old VC adage where it's like, all right, BI tools have been trying to do this for 20 years. Like what's changed basically. And for mm -hmm. that first year, nothing fundamental had actually changed. We were doing a better job rounding out the corners and we were getting rid of the, a lot of the sort of blockers to effective self-serve from a UI perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the second big unlock for us was the LLM revolution. Uh, okay. we'd, we'd always had some language capabilities. In fact, Paul and I, when we were studying, that was the year that attention is all you need came out, which is like okay. the seminal, like that's the foundation for GPT basically. Yeah. Uh, we'd always had some language capabilities, including the great, great grandparents of, uh, you know, GPT four and GPT three right. or even two. Right. Uh, as soon as things started to accelerate, we saw the opportunity ahead of us. And I, I guess we'd always expected that would happen at some point in time. Uh, I think it's happened faster than everybody expected, including us. Uh, but, you know, we realized that was the big unlock that was missing. Uh, and that let us, you know, first improve, you know, fidelity and everything, all the great stuff that comes with these models. The other big thing is it let us move from a single question search paradigm into a chat paradigm. Uh, okay. And, you know, that's important because... Uh, uh, these quick data polls never end with a single question. You know, it's always like right. a, a conversation. There's refinement sure. and iteration and things like that. And by adding the ability to do that, uh, that was the necessary unlock. And now that's what's changed. You know, like that's companies have been mm -hmm. trying to do this for 20 years. It wasn't possible because this technology just wasn't ready yet. So mm -hmm. that was the second big unlock. As soon as we did that and Zoe, the AI analyst was born, uh, that changed everything. That really allowed us to uh, you know, go way, way further down, like what's possible for self-serve uh, than ever before. Mm, okay. Um, Paul, tell me a little bit about Zoe, but also tell me a little bit about um, integrating AI. So like I understand, right, it's running on GPT-4 right now. Did you have 3.5 in there? Did, were you guys on like DaVinci before that? When did your like journey start in that, right? Because that's, that's the big unlock. So when did that, when did that kind of begin? Yep. So like Ryan said, we originally started on, you know, the, the old school models, just like parsing text using, you know, like BERT and other sort of progenitors to okay. the current LLMs. Um, we started with OpenAI with the, you know, DaVinci model uh, before okay. they had 3.5. Um, okay. And then we've, you know, basically seen our own, like what were our own capabilities just grow as we've used, you know, increasingly more advanced models. And then we, and we test all the models on the market. Like, you uh -huh. know, we test anthropic models, Google models, OpenAI stuff. Um, so it's like, we, we really, you know, look around to make sure that we're using the best thing on the market. And our architecture is very able to swap those out. So okay. that if someone else passes OpenAI, we will happily use the best foundation yeah. model available, basically. Have um, you seen any like features in other AI models that you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like I know Anthropic does a lot with like PDF uploads and, and that kind of stuff. Are you, have you seen other ones that seem promising? So the really large context windows are promising. 
the 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 trouble with the context windows is even if they, if they are really large, it's difficult to get the the AI to actually know what's going on in the middle. It does a very okay. good job at the beginning, very good job at the end. Okay. Um, with those really large context windows, a lot of the times things get lost in the middle. Um, yeah. So you know, context windows that are larger with you know good attention throughout would you know be be really game changing. So that's one of the things that's most appealing about the anthropic models. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I guess what it's probably trying to do is grab everything and do some sort of variation of a summary, which is the beginning and the end. But what you probably want those models to be able to do eventually is to be able to go through the whole thing and highlight every time they think there's a key finding, then they like condensing it, condensing it. So yeah, that, that makes sense. That, that'll be very it's interesting. Super fascinating. It's super fascinating though, this context windows, but you know, there've been a few studies that have shown that they don't retain the information in, in the middle of a long context window. And, mm. and I find that so so interesting because that's how humans work too, right? I was like, just thinking that. I'm like, that's exactly like my problem. I'm like, <laughs> if you gave me a PDF and said, like, give me the data from this, I'm like, skim the beginning, skim the end. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's just it's just neat how they seem to be <laughs> coming in the same direction that we are. So that it's, it's a sign that we're on to something in terms of right. intelligence. Yeah, we got to get the AI to stop cloning uh, us mere mortals and go for like the. Uh, the super geniuses we got to get Einstein's brain. That's what AI needs to be based off of. Um, then, but then the question is, is, is the input, is it an input problem or like the actual like algorithm problem? Because it also might True. be that all the stuff you need to predict what's going on is either in the beginning or in the end in everything True. that it's been trained on, because that's how humans read, right? It's like, you don't stick mm -hmm. something super important in like paragraph eight of 16. Right. So, right. you know, it's also maybe just math in the sense that Ooh. all the important stuff is at the beginning or is at the end. Ooh, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, Ryan, tell me a little bit about uh, the journey of Zenlytics. So, you know, at the beginning, you said you guys decided you're going to kind of work on this project. You get started. You have like these unlock periods. Um, did you, you guys raised funding, correct, for Zenlytic? What, what was the, when did you guys do that? What made you, you know, want to do that? Tell me a little bit about how that, how that went for you. Yeah, so we've raised two rounds of funding. Um, okay. We raised, raised our uh, pre-seed round pre-product led by Primary Ventures. Okay. Uh, and then we raised our seed round uh, led by Bain Capital Ventures. Uh, it's a total of five and a half million, give or take, okay. US. And um, yeah, it's, and it, I think, I guess my, my advice for internet fundraising would be, uh, I mean, know what you need the funds for, for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. But also you need to feel that pull. You know, there has to be a, you have to have the sense that you, it's ready, it's time to fundraise. And like, yeah, I say that because I mean, first fundraising, uh, you, you know, is expensive and it's like, you know, don't fundraise if you don't have to. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. so don't do that. But also I think that unless you're feeling that pull, it'll be a lot harder to successfully fundraise. I think a big part of a successful fundraise, uh, is when you're having conversations with investors, uh, they're going to feel that pull through you and that'll actually make you more effective at pitching. So, uh, mm -hmm. I guess in our case, you know, the, the, the first, sort of pull we got was like, it's, it's time for us to get out of consulting mode. And like, so like that, uh, that was the first thing is like, all right, like uh, we see the opportunity here. Uh, you know, we've validated that there's a huge, huge problem in, in a big market. And it's kind of an interesting place because a lot of the big leading BI tools uh, from then until now have been sort of languishing after acquisitions. You okay. know, so like a bunch of them just got bought, got, up, got bought up by some of the bigger companies and they've been sort of undergoing transformations and transitions and changing focus mm -hmm. and changing owners. And, you know, that does not lead to a, a fast paced innovative environment. So uh, yeah. there's, you know, we, we, we figured this out. And as soon as we saw the opportunity ahead of us, that got us really excited. And that said, all right, 
it's time to tackle this full on. And that helped us fundraise in the pre-seed motion. Uh, I think at the seed stage, uh, you can, we started to feel the wheels are rattling off the tracks in terms of how fast we could expand. Uh, okay. when we, when we closed our seed round, we were three and a quarter people, uh, which I think is quite undersized by most companies. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty, pretty small, fast. pretty lean. Yeah. Uh, as part of our philosophy, we'll always be like a, you know, super dense lean team. Uh, uh-huh. and I think that's just uh, how we like to run things. And I think we can get a lot more done a lot faster that way, just by having a handful of really, really great people. Mm. Um, and, but anyways, when we were raising the seed round, it was, yeah, we we're three and a quarter, uh, uh, wheels are falling off the tracks. We were totally just kind of stun locked out between product development and speaking to new people. And we said, all right, it's time to add more hands. We're feeling the demand for this product. People are getting excited. Uh, it's time to add more hands around the go-to-market side, you know, add more talent there, add more engineering capabilities. We could feel in almost every area of the business, we had a really good use for additional capacity. Uh, and we okay. said, that, that's time. Let's go for it. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Paul, tell me a little bit about what you think were the hardest technical aspects of getting this platform off the ground. What was like the hardest things you had to struggle with to, to get right on this thing? I think, I think there's, there's three things that I'd say here. Um, the first one is figuring out our explain change capability. That's basically this very esoteric field of algorithms. We actually had to push forward to be able to answer those why questions. Uh-huh. Um, the other thing is, um, critically just like the semantic layer, we made some improvements to, you know, underlying like SQL compilers that involve a lot of complicated stuff like graph mm-hmm. theory and other, you know, just really complicated to actually get that out. Um, those are sort of like individual crux moments. The thing that I think is really underrated in all software businesses is that it's just complex. You, mm-hmm. you know, we've been building BI tool for several years now, and you just find all these little problems, these little issues that just come up that you have no way, uh, you, there's no way to find them or anticipate them outside of just experiencing them. Mm-hmm. So the example with an established company is Salesforce. You can't just replicate Salesforce by copying right. basic CRM functionality. Salesforce has figured things out in two decades of building a CRM that all other CRMs just have to go through that same painful experience to be able to replicate those features effectively. So mm. it's like going through that, that is, is really the thing that's hard to copy. That's difficult things we've figured out in the UI, difficult, complicated you know, bugs that have come up, things that we've had to sort out. So the complexity itself is one of the, the cruxes that's often missed in software businesses. Yes, I, I definitely, I definitely can, uh, can see that. And then Ryan, question for you. Um, you know, you're talking about raising a, a pre-seed and a seed round and whatnot. What was, the, what was the actual process like for you? Did you go and just cold outreach? I know that you had worked in venture capital before. So were you tapping into some of your previous contacts? Like how did you, how did you put that round together? And, and what, was that, uh, what was that journey like? Yeah, for sure. One, one last one, because we got a bounce here after this. But uh, I think that uh, it's interesting. So I was, even though I was a VC for a long time, and I have like a network of friends in VC, which I think is why a lot of people get into it. And so I think it ultimately fundraise. I actually didn't use that at all uh, in any of our fundraises, really. Really? Maybe once or twice. But uh, it always just happens so organically and uh, uh, kind of quickly, I guess, that I didn't have to really tap into that. And I think that the greatest lesson I learned as a VC is actually not like that the network is important, but uh, I think it's important to, uh, if you do your homework and you get people uh, informed and excited about what you're doing before you're fundraising uh, and just mm-hmm. maintain those contacts of people uh, as an entrepreneur, I feel like just being prepared 
uh, is 90% of the battle. You know, like once you, if you come to a, a firm that you know, that you've uh, been keeping up to date, you've been calling shots and making those calls and saying, you know, next time we meet, we're going to be doing this. And then you do that. That That is just super impressive. That's more impressive than telling anybody your story, just letting them live it. And if mm. you've done that and you say, okay, it's time to fundraise, uh, I feel like you're going to get a lot more people leaning in, you know, so do your homework. The, the most yes. of the fundraise happens before the fundraise is my big takeaway. Yes, I think that is uh, that is something critical. A lot of people are learning in today's in today's field with a lot of these different AI startups happening. I know a lot of listeners would definitely appreciate that advice. Paul, what's one piece of advice you feel like you could give to technical founders on, um, you know, perhaps people right now starting new AI startups? Um, there's a lot of them. I think right now every startup is an AI startup. So what, what's a good piece of advice you could give to technical founders in the space? I think the, the best advice that I could give anyone is that this, there, there's one trait that is the single most important thing about starting a company, entrepreneurship, really just life in general. Um, this is one thing that Ryan, uh, one of Ryan and I's advisors says, is that you have smart people succeed, dumb people succeed, nice people succeed, mean people succeed. The one common denominator is persistence. You just do not give up ever. Even when it seems obvious that you should give up, you just don't. And that's sometimes bad advice because sometimes it's a bad idea and you need to give up. But <laughs> you know, you are you're it's just so easy to get discouraged. And that happens, you know, you can have a bad day and be like, wow, this is terrible. Or you can have a great day and be like, wow, we're, you know, like crushing it. Um, but you just have to be persistent. And you just have to say to yourself, like, we're going to do this. Like no matter how like hard it is or much it feels like it's not going to happen, just stay the course. And then, you know, if you're on an exponential curve, you don't know. It's all of them are flat for the first part. And then you slowly start to actually go up. So that's it. That is that is awesome advice. So I guess wrapping up here, I will ask one more question to Ryan, which is a, a similar question to the one I asked Paul, but from a CEO's perspective of an AI startup right now, and especially someone that has this experience in, in venture capital, um, what's one piece of advice you feel like you could give to founders today in this space um, and perhaps even to investors looking at these AI startups, um, seeing as you've been on both sides of that table? Yeah, I would say, well, so I think it's clear to everyone on both sides of the table that this is the next big opportunity. So like this is the platform shift. This actually only comes, these platform shifts happen once every, you know, eight to 10 years. The last one, in my opinion, is mobile, right? Before mm -hmm. that was the internet. So like, mm -hmm. uh, I'd say, first I would say to people on both sides, congratulations. Uh, this is a career defining, life defining, opportunity defining type moment for everybody. And I think there's a lot of excitement because of that. Uh, I would say uh, my biggest advice for everyone is, though, having said that, my biggest advice is don't pitch and don't invest in LLMs for LLMs sake you know, pitch solutions, pitch use cases, pitch jobs to be done, pitch problems to be solved uh, that happen to use LLMs because LLMs are just a tool for, you know, achieving a use case. And I would focus on that because that will make your pitch more effective. That will make your investments perform better. And that will uh, make your company better. You know, like that's, that's the right way to run a business. So that'd be my advice. I love it. That is, yes, that is very, very critical advice, I think, today. Well, Paul and Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, it has been absolutely amazing to pick your brains to get so much advice and wisdom from you. Uh, to the listeners, thanks so much for tuning in to the AI Chat Podcast. Make sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts and have an amazing rest of your day. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast episode, breaking down how AI is impacting your industry. Today's episode is sponsored by AIbox, a no-code AI app builder and marketplace, which just launched a crowdfunding campaign. If you are interested in investing in a new AI startup, you can go to republic.com slash AI dash box. I'll leave a link in the show notes as well to learn more. The minimum investment is $150 and the maximum investment is $100,000. Until next time, have a fantastic day.